how do we now do what people normally do? And we do it in a way that's extremely granular. So if they're looking at, for example, tenant demand in an office building, they might look at white collar worker data in n number of cuts, five, 10. Well, what about every industry? So it's about getting basically that hyper granularity, high definition, which is where the investment alpha is sitting. If you get better definition and granularity, you see different alpha. And that's just how that goes. Unlock the power of AI with our Advancing AI Summit in Melbourne on the 3rd to the 4th of May. Join us for two days of in-depth discussions and insights from industry leaders on how Australian businesses can enhance their AI practices to achieve substantial ROI. Discover the crucial next steps for scaling productionized models and learning best practices for project prioritization, governance, model monitoring, and measuring business outcomes. We'll talk emerging developments and trends, AI optimization and impact, as well as a fresh take on critical and enduring challenges. Join us at Advancing AI at the Crown Promenade, Melbourne, on the 3rd to the 4th of May, and gain the knowledge you need to drive innovation and improve operations in your business. Don't miss out on this opportunity to unlock the full potential of AI. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers, and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project focus, data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This is Felipe Flores. Today, we have a super exciting episode about how we can create data analytics capability within an organization and then find opportunities to create spin-off companies that focus on commercializing our product across an industry. For this, I couldn't have thought of a better guest. We got Jo Marsh here to talk to us about her journey and how she went from developing capability for data analytics in real estate, leading that, so she has been the general manager of innovation and advanced analytics at Investor Property Group. And now additionally to that, she's the CEO and co-founder at Exomnia. Joe, thank you so much for being with us. How are you going today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to hear about your, your journey and, and covering what you're doing now is amazing. And having built the capability in Investor, maybe we'll start with that and then keen to hear how the transition was to now having a, a company that is creating products across the industry. But maybe let's start with a bit of the Investor background. How was it being general manager for innovation advanced analytics in this real estate company? What was that journey like? It's a good question. And it's one of the things that now that I'm on the other side of, I would call it a career pivot, although other people would call it the most ridiculous thing that's ever been in a development plan that they've ever seen. And I remember I literally wrote in my development plan two years ago in the corporate system, you know, run a venture backed global analytics company worth more than a billion dollars. And at that point, when I pushed submit, first of all, I didn't know how audaciously naive that statement was at that at that point of time. And I also didn't know what it was going to take from there to actually have it come into fruition. And the first thing to say about Investa is, you know, my boss at the time is amazing. She took a deep breath in my development plan meeting and I could see the double blink and um, she was so great. And she went, okay, most people go, I want some additional Excel training. This is new. Um, okay, what can we do about this? And at that point, I'd been leading innovation in advanced analytics for a couple of years in Investa. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a surprise. And I'll go through the projects we were doing. But I guess just to say that 
this is what it looks like when you support your people's development inside of a corporate. And not everyone wants to necessarily get the next role or be on the executive or do these sorts of things. And it's kind of the new world where a lot of people want or have a side hustle um, that diminishes it to call it that. I don't mean it that way. They have something on the side they're passionate about, and it could be something that doesn't make money. It could be something like, you know, we volunteer or we spend time at our children's school. And there's probably a continuum from that to, you know, launch and grow a unicorn and take it up a venture-backed curve in, you know, advanced analytics, data science, and um, AI. So I'm probably the extreme, which uh, made, it made it a little more difficult. But the support was huge. And I think the support and commitment from the executive at Investa and then the board, everyone, was really around my career development. It wasn't as much around, I don't know, the opportunity or all these other things. And I kept pitching it that way. And so the first thing to say is probably it really was, we're going to back Joanna's career development, even though it looks non-traditional. Um, yeah, especially given, you know, I'm 42. I have two kids, um, five and six, Fox and Maverick. And women in rising corporate careers in really good companies who are doing well, right? We don't step out and start startups. It's too risky. You know, like I have got my kids, I've got this whole world, especially in the technical realm. And if you look at just the pure statistics, even just women who run venture-backed companies, a couple percent, right? But women in analytics, AI, deep tech, and then you add women in property, you're just looking, you're looking at like, and so I couldn't have done it without kind of the support given where I am in my life. I could have done it at 25, right? Or I could probably do it at 55, but right now it's this kind of crunch time in your early, late 30s, early 40s. And so that really supporting, it's not just me, it's also really supporting women in STEM, women in venture-backed companies, because we couldn't necessarily do that. So that's the first thing to say is, um, there was an alignment uh, around my dreams and goals. So that's yeah. cool. That's yeah. just really and, cool. And it's so interesting because um, uh, I've, I've only seen this type of setup very few times. Like it, I, I see it as, as quite rare, but I think something that you know, we we can uh, organizations can do a lot more of of identify, um, you know, uh, talented, um, capable uh, individuals and and uh, together jointly crafting a, a path for them that looks like this. But in the in the other times that I've seen this setup, generally it has been the idea of the spin-off company has been something that aligns to the vision of. A CEO of the of the initial company, or uh, a strategic direction, a life source strategic direction set by the board, where the company will be um, the spin-off company will be supporting that, or or act or, or or enabling something that can't happen necessarily in the mothership that needs a kind of like a separate innovation sort of team and can become a company as a utility for the industry. But I love it that in your case, a it. It was more, uh, and, and, and I'm sure some of the other items are ticked off as well, but for, first and foremost, about your career development. So that says so much about the goals that you picked up yeah. until that point, um, you know, in the couple of years to even kind of like put it on the table for people to have that, that backing. Um, how long was it percolating in your mind that this could be something that you'd be excited about taking on? It's a good question. So I am quite structured in my career planning. I, I have been for a while. And so for me, I've been in eight, 18 years in real estate, started in um, banking, um, have a neuroscience degree from Harvard. And then, you know, they like Ivy League kids with science degrees. So I had to go thrash through a learn, not only of banking, finance, that whole world, um, but also real estate and the nuances in real estate. So massive learning curve. And I think I remember literally in a big meeting asking like what a quarter was, like a, a calendar quarter. And everyone just looked at me going, oh my God, this person is like, how do we even have this person as one of our analysts? So anyway, came up the curve in that and then went, okay, I started our first property company and I didn't know what data was at the time. I just knew our property company, we bought these little multifamily um, assets. They were like 
10, 20 unit little assets in the US multifamily and we had to find them two turns off the highway. I had a whole little strategy, right? And we had to get them before the people that were better capitalized could get them. So when I left the bank to start that, I didn't know it was data, but we know we had a Google Earth thing, we geocoded, we had every site. We, then we went down to, okay, what are the triggers that would have someone, the owner, want to sell these assets? So for example, this was in Florida. The lien data is public. So you know the first mortgage and then the second mortgage as a percentage of the value um, as given by the state or the tax value. So I had we had flags. We were pulling all the scraping all the pulling all the data off. I had a calculation, then we had a flag that went, hey, now this is covered up over the 80% loan to value. They're gonna be overcapitalized, right? So that was one. We had another one, which was, you know, deferred maintenance. A lot of these properties were owned by um, a family might own one or two or three. A lot of times they didn't put in sufficient maintenance. So we knew there was going to be a roof capital call. They probably wouldn't have the capital for it. And so they flagged and then I we called them. So I was originating, we were originating all these deals and then we had weighted models on how we were going to do this, right? So we basically re-derived it. And this was, you know, I was 26 years old, 27 years old, a long time ago now. Uh, we re-derived it and I didn't know that was data scientists, science and data analytics and pipelines and stuff and visualizations. I didn't even know. Yeah. So we had to wind up the company because of the GFC and we couldn't get any more funding um, from the banks when after Lehman. So I came down to Australia and I started in a role at Dexas running strategy and cap trans and that sort of thing um, back with their prior CEO. And so the first thing I did is I went, okay, we need to figure out what to buy. So get out the maps and start doing the thing, right? And I didn't know this was an odd way to do it. And had I known what I know now, I would have rolled, you know, uh, tidied up the property company and kept the analytics company yeah. because it was really early and different. So my whole story with analytics from a business side is literally from the field level as an information advantage. Yeah. So it's been a long time coming, but I didn't know what it was. So then I was running, we were running investment. I went to Lendlease running, and then we started running innovation and it got more and more digital. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is pretty obvious. We have a valuation in real estate. There's only 100 fields, 300 transformation. Like this isn't that hard. And then I was going, well, if you have 10 comps and I have 100, then I win. So we started just working through all of it. And so I came from an investment background and I basically started getting language from data science to wrap around the things I already knew, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. So then we started doing actual data science work in innovation versus kind of the design thinking, because I thought, well, you know, design thinking and qual is really great, but I'm going to interview 30 people. We're going to get all the qual insights. What about the digital exhaust from people's actions that's reflected in data? So. Then we started looking at that. And then I met my co-founder, Will. He was working um, at a consulting company for an AI and ML consulting company, Spark Beyond at the time. We did some great work together. We were doing these project-based um, advanced analytics things, uh, projects. They were very expensive. We spent the first 80% just getting the data. It was, you know, in real estate, there is no Bloomberg. It's like the stock market before NASDAQ came in 71 and blew open the information, right? So you can't even aggregate. And there's some amazing data sets, external data sets, internal data sets, and open data sets, but they're not joined. And there's no templates. There's no, like, so we were basically reinventing it from scratch. And what became very clear is that without a data innovation surface like Bloomberg or something, it was so expensive and the opera, uh, I always get this word wrong. What's the word? Operationalization. Op yeah. That, that one uh, inside these companies, even with the best of intent. I mean, we, you know, we're working with Oxford, other, we were deploying billions of dollars off the back of the models, buying at like assets and great. But that part, that operationalization part that I say wrong was really hard. And the team moved on and the pipelines were great, but then you had to have the technical talent to maintain them. 
you know, hideously expensive. So we realized it's actually needs to be an industry utility, like you said. So that's when the idea of we and it needed to have way more funding than any one individual company from an ROI standpoint could fund it. Like it, I was just unwilling to ask for the money because it was like you know, I could only spread it across n number of assets, mm, exactly. and it's just not a fiduciary responsibility for the for the. And I was looking obviously at from an innovation standpoint, I want to drive budget down and efficiency in the business up. So, long story short, we started looking at how to create it as a standalone company, and we looked at doing a proper spin out. And we hired some great consultants to help us kind of look through it. And what we quickly realized is it's actually too non-core coop. The talent you need, the way you need to do it, the funding, the VC funding is actually not, it's not an adjacency. It's really different. <laughs> and so we decided an actual spin out wouldn't work. But my my idea was, okay. What if we outsource the entire advanced analytics function, not the internal data architecture, none of that, but the actual analytics, outsourced it and defrayed that cost off the balance sheet completely for Investa. Then they would get the benefit of all of that work and the project work back in as the foundational um, partner and customer. So we worked through all of that. It took 18 months to work through. Um, Investa had external legal, I had legal, we had to work through all of it. So there was a couple of components there, which I can go into if you're interested. One of the reasons we did it this way is I wanted to set precedent for everyone that maybe has an idea or is doing something and they haven't asked because they don't think they can, yeah. or they think if they raise it, the company will then come in and swoop and try to get the IP. Um, because that is a risk, right? Yeah. So I was very upfront for a couple of reasons. One, because that's how I am. And also two, to set the precedent and the track record so that anyone in real estate, like there's track record in consulting and maybe some of the tech companies and universities when Stanford, say, spun out Google and got, you know, 2%. There's not a lot in real estate at all. We couldn't find precedent. So we wanted to set precedent. So that was the second one. And then the third one is, I know what the 14 lawyers from the venture capital company on the other side of that C round, as we take this thing up the curve, is gonna are going to do in the DD rooms because I run corporate venture for investors. So I know what these DD rooms are like. And I know they're going to trace it right back to this moment. And they're going to say, tell me the IP story. And exactly. So- so yes, so that was the, a very long answer to, we worked through, because there was IP. So my co-founder, Will, and if anyone wants to talk to me about it, have them reach out, because there's actually, I should probably do some sort of flow chart for people, but my co-founder, Will, never worked for Investa. He left Spark Beyond into his own company. So I've never touched the source code or any of that. But of course, my brain is imbuing subject matter expertise into the company. Um. So there's IP there, even if we all went, oh no, it's not actually IP, the 14 lawyers or the VCs will say it's transferred IP regardless, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is you look at your contract, most contracts in this country for anything fairly senior, the company owns all your IP, yeah. no matter what. If you create a thing in the shower, right? They right. Own it. Um, yeah. Unrelated to- yeah. Unrelated to anything, especially in the innovation space, because if I have an idea, that's what my job is. Yep. So we had to work through, I had to get my contract varied. Then we had to get the IP back going back. We had to get the IP going forward. And we had to actually write a really comprehensive conflicts of interest policy yeah. between the two companies because now I'm a shared resource. Yeah. It would have been less complicated had I not kept working in Investa. Yeah. But the entire thing kind of had a beautiful um, epic romance at the end where Invest is the first customer. Yeah. Invest that doesn't own isn't on the cap table, but is the first customer and um, gets benefits from that. We've defrayed all the cost off the balance sheet. I still work there. And the learnings are amazing 
because I'm literally coached CEO, my growth tech startup in one world. And then I walk back in kind of with the new lens the very next day and I look at it differently. So it's an amazing development opportunity for for the talent. Amazing, amazing, um, amazing opportunity. And I love the way that you restructured it. How did you navigate those trade-offs and those decisions with with investor? Um, yeah, maybe maybe we can go into that first and getting getting the support and then navigating the, these tricky discussions. It it was tricky. I think the first thing that really worked is just to be really open, honest, and upfront about it, right? To not hide anything from the very moment of literally writing it in my development plan, but also just saying, look, this is what I believe is best for Investa. We now invest in a you know data-driven world in real estate. The industry is digitizing quickly. This is really expensive. I am extremely commercial. So I'm looking at protecting the PL, protecting like the way for investors. So I said, you need this. It isn't there. You can't buy it. You could cobble it together through a lot of different enterprise level um, you know, solutions, but it would be really expensive and the internal team would technical team would be have to be huge, right? So I was explaining my philosophy from a commercial standpoint the entire time. And they really, they really got it because I was like, there are other ways to do this. But in the spirit of open innovation, we are innovating around a problem we have. And then we're going to innovate the solution. This one just looks really different from any other partnership or any other thing. And so they got that. And it was... It was all very um, methodically kind of talked about and moved forward. Where it started to get a little more real, I would say, because we were fully aligned. So there's no, there was never antagonist. Everyone was, let's do this together. Let's let's do it and support it. We just need to figure out a how. And because there wasn't precedent, there was nothing to point yeah. to. Yeah. So. Where it got a bit um, more real is when we started hiring lawyers, because that's where um, uh, investors' lawyers, protecting investors, and rightfully so, are giving all of the, you know, the risks, right? Yeah. And Exomnia didn't exist at that point because I wasn't allowed to actually, not allowed, that's the wrong word. I wasn't even going to spin up a company, entity, bank account, anything until we had the IP sorted. So there was this kind of circular reference where we were trying to sort out something with a company that didn't exist. So I was trying to get a master services agreement, all of these things for the foundational customer agreement when the company wasn't alive. We didn't have a... So we were... I We wrote this MSA, Exomnia did, wrote this MSA. And I remember literally in the service levels and things, you know, being inside of like Google Cloud service levels at, at four in the morning, Googling, going, okay, here's how we're going to run the ticket center. Here how this, here's the backups. And and my co-founder, Will, and I are like caveating. This doesn't exist yet, but here's what we think. Yeah. And so it was, it was this, we had to give enough confidence that we were, we were going to deliver on these things without locking the startup into something that we didn't know. So that was the chicken or the egg bit of it. And I think the other thing in there that was something that I just so appreciate about Investa and also on Exomnia's side, because we had a team there, is kind of when it got hard and not by hard, I don't mean negative. What I mean is unclear. When it got gray, everyone just took one step forward and went, okay, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? What's the best? And so we basically, and then everyone went, I can live with that. Okay. And then we went one step forward and it was exacerbated because as you know, startups can, can't deal with enterprise MSAs regardless. Yeah. Like even if you're, you know, you're, you're like, and so there's so many things we had to get insurance. We had to get like the, what's the cyber plan? We had a, what's the privacy policy, right? A privacy policy. We had lawyers do that. Was it? So I was just checking off 
all of these things to satisfy the MSA and then the early adopter agreement and then the conflict of interest agreement. So, and then eventually, and we were holding because we had funding ready for Exomnia and it was getting held up month, 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 just because we were working through. I probably was a bit optimistic about the time that it was going to take to do this new kind of innovation. Um, so I was holding up funding until finally I just said to invest, I was like, we, we need to land somewhere because we have to take in the capital. Mm. And that was the bit where they went, we get it. And so there was five things outstanding. And I just went, I'm fine with all of them except number four. They went, I'm fine with that. We cut it. And we, we, we locked yeah. it down. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, I think being really upfront and a lot of communication, like I left, for example, all of my red lines when I went back and forth, I just left it all in really open collaborative versus our side versus yours. Um, and the, you know, the internal legal counsel at in um, Investa, Leslie is really, really innovative and she gets it. So she was pushing as well. The team was really extraordinary. That's that's amazing. And I think um yeah, one of the one of the main things that happens in in startups um and in setting up startups is um the the sometimes like over optimism uh, around the timings. Um and essentially like everything is is harder than what um people expect going into it. Um so perseverance I think it's it's almost more important than than anything else, just around to like keep at it until you you get there, being outcomes driven as, as you as you have been. Um, that's an amazing way to navigate that, and um, the support from Investor is is amazing. I love that they're as a foundational customer. And what were their thoughts about becoming an investor as well? So we they have the right to look at every round. Right, mm -hmm. we we did that. I wanted to make sure because I'm still there, I wanted to make sure the conflicts of interest at this moment didn't include investment only because there's enough conflicts of interest we're managing that. So that's on one side, I think, to add an investment component as well would make it harder. I think the other part, too, is from my innovation hat, because I'm managing the corporate venture part of it. It's too early for investor to invest really uh -huh. just from a prop tech investment. Really, it's much more, it's much better at the A round post. Mm -hmm. The tech is more mature. Um, it's de-risked slightly. They yeah. can deploy it across the platform. So I think this is a really great balance of the investor will always have the right to look at it and, you know, come in if they would like to with the market and they don't have to now. And I think it's really, that's really a uh, match to who Investa is. If you were a different company, I know, for example, Center Group with Ligon, with this, the digital blockchain, um, not blockchain, digital bank guarantee grew, uh, who came out of Center Group and then the four banks backed it with IBM. Center Group takes the positions early. And it's just a different investment philosophy, I think, as well. Yeah. Um, I think Investa has the, this is the best of both worlds. Uh, we thought through it quite I guess, deeply and intentionally yeah. about it. But the pre-seed, because we just closed the 1.5 mil um, uh, little baby round venture pre-seed. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was cool. It was one of those um, cool things to, to do. So that was at the end of January. We closed that. And so now we've hired some more tech people and it's all um, guns blazing. But pre-seed is very early, right? We have a fully functioning tech platform that has data sets in and and use cases. But the business side is, so that's really quite far advanced. The business wrap and that part of building that business and the product led and everything is just not. So yeah, pre-seed is very early, I think, um, for a lot of corporates. Yes, yes, definitely, um, yeah. definitely. But yeah, and, and how, um, and I'll just quickly highlight before moving into to the, the question I wanted to ask you about um, getting the process of getting funding. Um, but I think I just wanted to, to call out that it's, I think a lot of people underestimate the, um, the setup that startups need in order to work with large corporates. 
the list of requirements is massive, as you were saying, like privacy and cybersecurity and insurance. And like, there's, there's so much, um, not administrative burden, but there's so much policies, processes, structure that you need in order to, um, understand the regulation as well. Like even before, um, you can start work with, with a large art company like this. So that's like, amazingly, we have all done, well done. And it's something that I'm very aware of because I run the partnership program for Investo mm. with startups. And what I would say is I'm, this is one of the things I really want to impact for startups is mm. it's easy to get a pilot, right? Yep. Not easy. Well, it's relatively easy to get a pilot yeah. um, in something that feels safe. People can give you a clean, sanitized data set. You don't have to have your cyber in this and this and this, right? And it can be exciting. So we do this. And it can also look like false traction because it feels really great. Then we go to enterprise rollout. And I've sat across from, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs with successful pilots hit the, the KPIs. And now we're looking at how do we roll across a portfolio or a fund or these wow. sorts of things. And the answer is, here's your 700 line procurement Excel spreadsheet cyber privacy modern slavery blah blah and the whites of their eyes because they're not ready for the blowtorch of corporate processes and the thing is it's table stakes there's no amount of deal cutting charisma product anything amazing that you can do that negates the fact that you need a cyber plan and the thing is a lot of those line items actually take 12 to 15 to 18 months to put in. Yeah. yeah. So at that moment when they're jumping to the rollout, that's where they look at you and they go, we don't have the runway. And it's this feeling, I say, I have tears come to my eyes. It's this feeling of like, and so I've been now telling all the startups I work with and invest, I give them that in the first coffee. Exactly. I'm like, exactly. And I'm really, we're building a bunch of processes um, and templates at Investa that are the lightweight early adopter ones. So mm-hmm. here's the enterprise MSA, but here's this one. Here's this one. We'll help you track to cyber. We'll help you. We've done all these risk workshops and built up this whole thing of why work with early startups as an enterprise. And there's a lot of good reasons. Um, what are the yeah. risks? Boom, 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 boom. How do we mitigate these risks and help the startups? So one of the things we did with Exomnia is because I know this is coming is we started the cyber yeah. before we even closed. I mean, so I hired uh, Clive Bailey, who's our COO at Exomnia. First, we were the first hire um, beyond the founding team. And now he is part of the founding team, but came in. He was the old chief information, not old, prior chief information officer at Dexas, yeah. CIO at Perpetual. Yeah. He's like the veteran. I mean, he's brought in his, um, another person, Tim, who's one of our GMs. They've started building to ISO, to NIST. We've got SOC 2. We've got literally the first expenditure. And one of the things about this that, and I have to justify it with the capital a lot because they're going, well, where you are, you should be doing MVP Figma prototypes. Yeah. Not spending a lot of your capital on cyber private. The thing is, is I know what's coming. Exactly. exactly. And it's a non-negotiable. Uh, and so it looks odd, like we're building the startup in reverse, but I'm very clear that this is how we have to do it. 100%, 100%. Like, um, and I've seen it in the company that I work at, which is a health tech company um, where one of the main investors is the um, a foundational client. And as you said, like there's yeah. definitely like that muddies the water. So it, it, I like that, that you created that separation. Um, I was, oh, I be, I was like, I mean, as like employee number eight, uh, for this, uh, health tech company, but I signed on before the company existed. Uh, so they were kind of like finishing those conversations that, that you drove, uh, yeah. with an investor. Um, and, I, I like, I've been, I've seen firsthand or and or had to lead the general creation of that capability in order to, for us to service and plug into a regulated insurance entity. Um, and then we've become a almost like a, a middleman to get other startups. Exactly, us too. 
Yeah. They work in. Yep. That's yeah. an entire point. Yeah. And, yeah. And the entire like point. Yeah. Going through again, getting them like up up to up to speed, help them identify, fill the gas when necessary. We take on some of the risk. And then through us, they can plug into large regulated entities like yes. companies. And like we are kind of, yeah, looking after like a lot of the security stuff, a lot of the, the privacy, uh, insurance, like a lot of, a lot of things. And I think it's something that most uh, startup companies don't foresee. So I love the approach that you have um, in terms of putting that in front of them first and, to, and, and then for your company building it first. And um, yeah, in the company that I worked in, we did the same where in the first year, well, one of our major deliverables was to get um, ISO certified, ISO 27001. And that was like a big push. And yeah. everyone was like, isn't that a bit early for you guys to be certified? It's like, without it, we can't, we can't play. That's, that's to get on the table. Right? That's right. That's right. And you're, I love what you're, what you're saying, because that's my... Um, my hypothesis, right? Because as we get more and more up the curve in the certification, and we're tracking to be able to work with defense because we've got you know Amazing. some interest there, right, in terms of their um, portfolio. But you're exactly right. So my big protection of the other startups and prop tech is don't do this. Come hook in to ours once we get it up. That way we can share the data up. They can do whatever they do without ever having to take the data out of the environment, they can do it in Exomnia, generate their insights for their products, and then push it back through an entire middle layer. And, and that's where the data providers, which is why we're open sourcing, we're open sourcing the panels, we're open sourcing a lot of this so that the technical creators can come in and build, and the data providers can then leverage all that infrastructure, mix their external data with the internal so that's exactly my hypothesis. So um, that's so cool you guys have done it because I'm gonna have to pick your brain offline about then how, because it's one thing to do it yourself and then it's another, the agreement with the other group, right? Exactly. But, that, but that's my vision is then I remove that pain for the startups and scale-ups and data providers and analytics providers, they never have to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's um, so in the in the industry that, that we play in, uh, particularly in health insurance, the health insurers are regulated to um, to have any companies that have the data, they need to comply with the same security regulations that are that are, go upon the health insurer. Mm -hmm. But then that applies to any downstream companies that yeah. have that data. And then the companies that we help work with health insurers are um, digital health apps. Well, that's right. Digital physiotherapy or digital mental health, things like that. And then, so we have to help them have the security levels in order to pass the regulation that's applied to the health insurers um, and then privacy and et cetera. And then like we, we help them and control a lot of that um, in order to make it possible. And it definitely speeds up the process, but it's, it's usually a, a big lift. It's just mm -hmm. not as big as it would have been otherwise. But it sounds like in your setup, they, you're you're uh, you're doing it in a way that is is a, a smaller, even a smaller lift for the uh, for the other companies when they work within your your platform. And well, I think it's efforts. yeah, and I think it's different, right? Because in the health, you're dealing with a lot of pe personal information, highly sensitive, also highly emotional charge mm -hmm. data, right? Like, so there's a, I mean, what you what you're doing and talking about is really amazing to unlock innovation because if I had this really passionate app that I wanted to, you know, help people in terms of, you know, um, yeah, help people in terms of making them better. And I was a doctor and I had this whole thing. The barrier is ridiculously insurmountable in health, right? Like it's really hard. In real estate, it's not nearly as hard because a lot of the data is not actually PII data at all. It's just commercially sensitive. Yeah. So it yeah. would be something like a uh, commercial terms of a lease, which people can get kind of sensitive about definitely, but it's not the same thing. So I think what you're doing is really cool because you know that there's a lot of people out there that can't do that and have amazing health app ideas. And like, yeah. Yeah. it would stop me from even considering that 
that's fear would be that yeah. those data requirements i would yeah, I, exactly no it's definitely it's definitely a big lift and then um a part that that we do um is that we um have algorithms that determine what people would benefit from what interventions so and then we essentially plug them like towards those, those interventions but there's a consent process that go back goes back yeah. to the patient so yeah. if yeah if the algorithm says this person would benefit from a digital physiotherapy uh, intervention which is on the less acute scale then we can um we can find a partner that has that and then for the for the patient they get the question hey there we have a partner who can provide the service that we think you could benefit for uh it's it's free for the patient would you like that and here's the the disclaimer that it's a third party and we'll have to share some of the data blah blah, blah and we check that it's secure and private and then if they agree then they get plugged in but we have kind of the um the evaluation um frameworks and also to then help us direct people to the care that they need and then we bump them up and down um as as required so then if if they need parental help we get them in a call with a nurse and the nurse can coordinate further care from there um but that's kind of like how we manage it. So we de-identify data, oh. and then the algorithms tell uh, tell um, we build the algorithms to say what uh, type of care people need. Um, that's I uh, love that. I, I I love what you're doing. This is amazing. And what's what's um yeah what's what's looking forward like what's coming ahead for for Insomnia? So it's really about it's so we're starting in real estate. Obviously, the Exomnia engine is industry agnostic. And where I really, I mean, I've you know, had the real estate subject matter expertise. It's the largest asset class in the world. And there's a huge amount of innovation to happen in that asset class. Where I'm particularly excited is in within ESG, inside of real estate. And so what we're doing right now is we're creating these bundles and templates because it's all template driven. Uh, with the pipelines and data sets just all there. So you don't even have to really think about it. You just pull down a, you know, a resource pack around leasing or you pour down a resource pack around research. So it's really that research is a service research intelligence. Um, where I'm really excited is after we productize the ones we have, kind of the baseline of real estate. So you, you know, do strategy, you buy stuff, you lease it, you operate it, so all the sensor data, you sell it and you get capital. So there's kind of like some things you do in real estate. The very next slice, which I have to hold myself back every single day and give it to myself as like a carrot in my brain, is ESG. And we've started some of it um, looking at the overlays, say for if you're valuing a building, there's already some ESG components, but let's look at all the data around ESG, not only the tenant um, commitments and their strategies on ESG, but everything, the net zero, um, the way that you actually do CapEx in order to, you know, deliver on ESG outcomes, social criteria, all the data around modern slavery, affordable housing. We've done some affordable housing work. So we've done bits of it. What I'm really excited about is productizing a lot of that overlay of ESG onto, onto the templates. But yeah, so it's about really providing those templates for people to democratize. So all of a sudden you're not, you know, going back to analyst alley, burning your people for, you know, 48 hours to get a new cut. The data, data engineering and data science teams actually get to do what they're good at instead of, you know, changing the color or getting a new cut or, you know, those sorts of things um, that we waste our our best creative talent on. So there's all of those. What I would say is efficiency is just table stakes, to be honest. Like at this point, you know, you should be cutting 50% of grit and time cost error out of that just, just by what we do, right? Um, and that's really helpful in kind of this economic environment because people do need to get more efficient. Yeah. Where I kind of go, everyone gets excited about that. And I kind of go, to me, that's just a by the by. If we don't do that, like, you know, what are we doing? So that's that one. And then the second one is, how do we now do what people normally do and we do it in a way that's extremely granular. So if they're looking at, for example, tenant demand in an office building, 
They might look at white collar worker data in n number of cuts, five, 10. Well, what about every industry? So it's about getting basically that hyper granularity, high definition, which is where the investment alpha is sitting. If you get better definition and granularity, you see different alpha. And that's just how that goes. And then the third one is expanding what you can see. So instead of looking at the 40 buildings you might be looking for leasing in, you know, you have algorithms that look across every building. And so that's that really broad view. So I'm sort of thinking about it like everybody's watching old black and white low fi TV on a small screen, but we're going to give them high fi, so deep on a really big screen. And that just really allows the humans to then spend their time um, applying their expertise on it. And we're seeing it because, you know, we've been doing it for a while. I think the other exciting thing is the um, the large language models and interacting with analytics through text. Mm. And that's really important, I think, from a democratization standpoint for non-technical users, because how many times do you talk to someone who's, oh, I'm not technical because their math teacher in seventh grade, you know, scared them or something or they made up for some reason and they look at a graph and their their mind goes fuzzy before they even, you know, what is it? How does it work? So for me, the large language model interfaces, text interfaces is a new UI that is less scary, basically. And so we're building that prototype now. And there's a couple of different ways to do it. But one of the founding team members, um, Debo, he's you know world expert at this. And there's a lot of text data in real estate. So... It's actually a really great application um, for data extraction aggregation as well out of documents and all those sorts of things to make it faster. So um, yes, Debo wrote a lot of or co-authored a lot of the the papers that are referenced by OpenAI. And so we're basically doing that piece. Um, we're careful with that because you can get an answer that's really wrong. <laughs> and especially in real estate where there's so many nuances that go into value. Yeah to pretend you can accurately get a price is just, well, one, you can't, and two, it wouldn't matter anyway because it's the market and how they bid. So it's a different game. But I remember, I was talking to you a while ago, I remember you had this idea of taking pictures, right? Photographs and then pulling data out of the photographs and then aggregating that up. So. Like examples like that is really exciting because as we open source with Exomnia, it's a use case just like that, that I'd be saying, let's figure out a little test pilot. Let's do, let's build because it's now possible. There's a startup I met the other week. I can't remember their name. I'll get it for you for the show notes, but they basically are taking photos and turning them into plans, like floor plans. Nice, nice. And then of course, they don't, you know, you could go the next way, which you would know how to do and pull out the actual data measurements into a structured set, but things like that just unlock huge innovation because you can put them on Exomnia, monetize them for yourself as a creator, and we can blend them in with the other data sets into the templates. So that's a long, circuitous and rather you know unpolished answer. But what I would say is there's a huge amount of opportunity and it's exciting. Oh, super exciting. And I think that's, that's uh, such a big theme that has come uh, out of our conversation is that the possibilities that are able to be unlocked through an industry that you know has been or is going through a digitalization phase and then applying data science and AI to it in, with creative thinking, but bringing in the subject matter expertise that has been created and has driven the field for decades like making sure that that's not forgotten or thrown out. Um, I think that that combination is super powerful. And uh, yeah, the, the possibilities are extremely, extremely exciting. But it wouldn't be possible without the, the work that you've done and going through the journey that you shared. Um, so I commend you for that. I think that the, the vision and the, the courage and the perseverance is really inspirational. So thank you so much for, for doing that. Thank you so much for sharing that and for doing it in a way where you're from the get-go thinking about setting a precedent and, and, and sharing that journey in a way that other people can 
um, can learn from it and understand what are the steps that it takes, how long it takes, what are the things to think about that just um, opens opens so many minds uh, to the possibility of uh, doing something similar, uh, looking at, at people's careers, um, people just thinking about their career. So overall, Joe, thank you so much. Um, yeah, always amazing to speak with you. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Thank you very much. And um, I think it's one of those things that, you know, if anyone listening is, if you think in the corner of your mind that you have, you know, something like this that maybe you aren't asking your cor- your corporation about or your boss or, you know, anyone about, but it's kind of sitting in your mind as something. Part of it is I wanted to set the precedent to how, but also just the precedent that it can be done. Yeah. Right. And not to say that every company will do it and not to say that every boss will support it or anything, but if we don't ask, then it doesn't. Had I not written that in my development plan in an audaciously naive <laughs> way, we wouldn't be sitting here. So I think a lot of it is just sometimes we just ask, right? And the courage it even takes to like ask that to me is that first micro bit of courage where you think, oh, they're just going to shut it down or tell you you're stupid or naive or blah, blah. And they did none of that, right? But I could have easily not asked. And then that would be that. Exactly. That was kind of like the lead domino that started that, the chain reaction. (laughs) It's cool. Well, thank you very much for this as always. Amazing. Thank you so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.